Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Take your Bible and turn to the book of Jude. That's a little book. It's only one chapter before Revelation, the last book in the New Testament. Jude concludes this short book with one of the greatest doxologies in all of Scripture. And in this doxology, Jude talks about our great God. He first of all talks about God's great power to keep us saved. Verse 24, Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. That's God's great power to keep us saved. Once we're born again into God's kingdom, we cannot get unborn. Secondly, he talks about God's great promise to present us in His presence faultless, without blame. And to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless and with great joy. And then thirdly, he talks about God's great person, beginning in verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. We saw the last time we were in this passage, the first part of God's great person, and that is the first part of that verse 25, He is the only God. And there were three things I told you about God as the only God. First, He is the God of Scripture. Secondly, He alone is God. And thirdly, He is one God. Now today we're continuing with verse 25 to the next phrase, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jude is referring particularly to God the Father as our Savior. The last time we were in this passage, you remember I stressed that God is one God. Three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but one God. Now when you're reading the Bible and you read the word God, you've got to determine is the writer talking about the Godhead, the Trinity, or is the writer talking about God the Father? And you've got to determine that from the context of the passage. For instance, when in Genesis 1-1 it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, he's talking about the Godhead, the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But in John 3-16 when we read, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life, he's talking about God the Father there, because the Son is mentioned. Well, here in our passage in Jude, God the Father is in view, because again, Jesus is also mentioned in this verse. Therefore, Jude is praising God the Father as our Savior. That's unusual for you and I to think about God the Father as our Savior. We are accustomed to think about Jesus as our Savior. But actually, the Old Testament says a good bit about God as our Savior. And in fact, in the New Testament, eight times, God is called, the Father is called, our Savior. And so in this passage today, Jude is telling us that our great God is our Savior. Now let's look closely at this phrase, God, our Savior. The word Savior means one who rescues another from great danger. The idea is God has delivered us from some grave harm. He has saved us from some great destruction. 
Now, to help us understand God is our Savior, we're going to consider two questions. Number one, what was the grave danger that God saved us from? And then secondly, how has God saved us from this grave danger? All right, those two questions, keep them in mind. First, what's the grave danger that God saved us from? All right, to get to understand that question, we must come to the heart of the problem, which is a problem of the heart. And the problem of the human heart is that simple three-letter word, sin. Paul, over in Romans chapter 3, and let me invite you to take your scriptures and turn to Romans chapter 3. Paul gives us a commentary of the human heart, the human sin condition. Now, Paul goes to Psalm 14 and quotes from Psalm 14 as he describes the sinful condition of the human heart. Now, let's look at this passage and kind of unwrap what Paul has said. Romans 3, beginning in verse 10. As it is written, and he means by that in the Old Testament. First, there is none righteous, not even one. Now think about that. None righteous, not even one. Paul is telling us that mankind is universally sinful. That all human beings who live on planet earth and have lived on planet earth have fallen short of God's perfect standard of righteousness. You say, but preacher, I know people that, that do good things. Yes, but compared to God's perfect standard of righteousness, they're not righteous. Look at it this way. If you were on the island of Hawaii and you were trying to jump across the Pacific Ocean to Los Angeles and say that the person in front of you was a world-class long jump participant, in fact, the world record for the long jump, you might want to know, is a little over 29 feet. And say this person was that record holder and he started running and he jumped 29 plus feet into the Pacific Ocean toward Los Angeles. And you came behind him and the best you could muster up was 10 feet out into the Pacific Ocean. And maybe somebody came behind you and and they were older than you and, and more feeble and the best they could do was run and jump 5 feet into the Pacific Ocean. Now, you could look at that person that, that jumped 29 feet and say, man, you know, he's sure a lot better than I am. But when you look at the distance that was needed to reach Los Angeles, that 29 feet didn't mean much at all, did it? It didn't amount to anything. And though people may do what we think are good deeds, when you compare it to the perfect standard of God's righteousness, it falls so short that you would consider it no righteousness at all. And so he says there's universal sinfulness. Secondly, he says in verse 11, there is none who understands. There is spiritual ignorance. If you go back to our illustration, what Paul is saying is not only can we not jump from the island of Hawaii to Los Angeles, we don't even know which direction to jump. We don't even know where we need to go on the island to jump the right direction. We don't know which way is east, west, north, or south. Mankind is born into this human race spiritually ignorant. We don't know God. Now, we have a sense that there's got to be something more than us when we look at the creation. But look at all the false religions of the world that have gone in the wrong direction. There is no true knowledge of God within man on his own. We are spiritually ignorant. No one understands. No one truly knows God on their own or can comprehend Him on their own. 
The Toronto Star ran an article several years ago about this duck at the local park there who in some way had gotten one of those tabs that come on the drink cans stuck on its beak and it could not open its beak to eat. And so people felt uh, sorry for it and the local newspaper got in it and started publicizing the story. They brought in an expert duck quacker, duck caller, and tried to call the duck over there. They ended up nicknaming the duck Ringo, I guess because of the ring on its nose. But the duck wouldn't come. Uh, they tried to lure it with food. Couldn't get it to come. Everything they tried, the duck kept running away afraid. You see, the duck was totally ignorant that these people were trying to help the duck to keep the duck from starving to death. And the article went on to say that nobody knows what happened to Ringo, whether Ringo managed to get off the ring or not. But that's the condition of mankind left to their own. They're running away from God. They're running away from us who want to help them, who say, look, we have an answer. We can help you. We can save you from spiritual death. We have the solution. But they're running away from us because they think we're trying to hurt them. They think we're trying to harm them when we're really just trying to help them. And then he goes on to say, there is none who seeks for God. Mankind is universally self-centered. We don't seek for God. And you say, oh, but what about people that, that seem to be religious? They seem to be seeking. Well, the reality is they're seeking the God of their own making. They're seeking their man-made God. They're not seeking the God of Scripture. Paul says they've turned away from the truth about God and worshipped idols of their own making because we're self-centered. The truth is, we think the universe revolves around us. We come into this world thinking that. And unless God shows us differently and opens our eyes, that's the way we are. Next in verse 12, and all have turned aside. We're all rebellious against God. In the human heart is rebellion. A person left to themselves will grow up rebellious. Rebellious against authority. They become the authority in their lives. You have to teach people to submit to authority. It doesn't come natural. The natural thing is to resist it. The natural thing is to do what you want to do. We have turned aside to go our way, not God's way. We want to run our life. We want to be the captain of our soul. We want to determine our fate. And so man stands in rebellion against God. He goes on to say, together they have become useless, spiritually worthless. When it comes to jumping from Hawaii to Los Angeles, how useful is that 29-foot jump? And that's the best anyone could do. How useful is it? Absolutely useless. Doesn't do a bit of good to get 29 feet into the Pacific Ocean when you're trying to get to Los Angeles. In fact, it may even be more harmful because then you've got to swim back further. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that, that we have become useless. All these things we try to do to earn God's favor, to earn God's acceptance, all these things we try to do are worthless. Because there is none who does good. There is not even one. Paul is saying we're all born morally corrupt. Oh, yes, you say, but they do some good things. Yes, but compared to God's absolute goodness, it's nothing but filthy rags. In Scotland one day, a man was was walking down the street and he had a New Testament in a leather case. And some youth saw him and and thought the leather case was a camera case. And so they came up to him and said, hey, how about taking our picture? And he looked at him and said, I already have your picture. And they said, what? When did you take our picture? And he opened up his New Testament to this passage in Romans 3. And he read, there's none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God. We all have turned to our own way. 
And then he used that as an opportunity to share the gospel with these young people. You see, the condition of the human heart is we are separated from a holy God. We're under the guilt and condemnation of our sins. We are enslaved to sin. And we are dominated by the roots of ungodliness. Now, what about the issue with God's heart? The issue with God's heart is His holy wrath. God's heart has been grossly offended by our sin. God told the Israelites, your sin has caused a separation between me and you. You see, the holiness of God has been violently offended by our wickedness. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You see, the righteous justice of God requires that man be judged for his sins. God's holiness demands that mankind be punished because of their sinfulness. Over in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, Paul says this so clearly. He says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. Look at what that verse says. That says that because man is sinful and offended the holiness of God, that God's wrath is being stored up. It's being piled up, waiting to be poured out on that person on the day of judgment, when they will be judged according to all of their evil deeds. The Bible says the problem is man stands in a sinful heart, separated from a holy God, under the wrath of God, Awaiting the punishment and judgment of an eternity in hell. Separated from Christ forever and ever and ever. That's what we need to be saved from. We need to be saved from the holy wrath of God over our sinfulness. We need to be saved from the judgment and from the punishment that awaits us because of our wickedness. And that brings us to the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is, the good news is, that God Himself has saved His chosen ones from His own wrath. That God the Father took the steps necessary to appease His wrath and satisfy His justice. Over in 1 John chapter 4, in verses 8 through 10, John shows us the heart of the good news. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. First thing John wants to establish, look, God's a loving God. God does not enjoy punishing the wicked. He would much rather the wicked repent and be saved. But His holiness, He wouldn't be a holy God. He would not be a just God if He didn't punish wickedness. But His heart is love. And He goes on to say, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God. When did we love Him first? But that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The good news is God the Father took the steps necessary to satisfy His holy wrath and to satisfy His justice. Now that's what separates Christianity from every other religion of the world. 
Every other religion, man tries to do something to appease the wrath of his God. You can go to the most primitive animistic religions of the world, and you will see man trying to offer sacrifices, trying to do things to appease the anger of the God that he knows he's offended. He knows innately that he has offended God, and he's trying to appease this God with all types of rituals and sacrifices and superstitions. Or look at the more sophisticated religions of the world, be it Islam. The Islamics have to gain God's favor by doing things. By saying certain prayers, praying toward Mecca five times a day. They're doing all these things for the purpose of trying to earn the acceptance of their God, of trying to appease His anger. But Christianity is not human achievement, but it is divine accomplishment. Christianity is not what I achieve to earn God's acceptance, but it's what God has done in order that He can accept me. It's what God has accomplished. That He has sent His Son to be the propitiation, to be the appeasement of my sins and for my sins. Christianity is God the Father accomplishing what is needed to quench His own wrath against those whom He loved and has chosen to save. You see, God has averted His wrath on His people, and this is a work that He initiated, that He accomplished. That's why you see in verse 10, this is love, not that we love God. He didn't respond to our love for Him. But while we were yet enemies of God, He took the step. He initiated the act to bring us and reconcile us to Himself. And that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. And so that's what we need to be saved from. We need to be saved from the holy wrath of God. Now how has God accomplished that? Paul go, uh, Jude goes on to say, To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is through Jesus Christ that God's anger has been averted. You see, God has averted His anger through the death of Jesus Christ. That's why Jude writes, God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. Had Jesus not come and lived and died and rose again, we would have no Savior. God would not be our Savior. The means of accomplishing our salvation was Jesus Christ. You see, the biblical witness is clear. The means that God used to satisfy His wrath and justice was the sacrificial death of Jesus. Here again, we're centering in on the meaning of the word propitiation in 1 John 4.10. Now, propitiation is not a word that I think you use in everyday conversation, that is it. But it is a good word, and I want to take a moment to help you understand it, because it, it is such a good word. To propitiate means to appease someone or win someone's favor. And so what... The Scripture is saying here in 1 John 4.10 is that this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to appease His wrath for our sins. You remember the Old Testament story of Jacob and Esau? Remember that when Esau was the oldest, uh, but Jacob really wanted the family blessing. And in those days, uh, the oldest child got the blessing and he got uh, the majority of the inheritance. And so Jacob wanted this, and, and uh, his mother uh, heard that, uh, that 
his father was going to give Isaac was going to give the blessing to Esau, and so she said, "Look, let's let's go trick your dad and get you the blessing." And so they fixed his favorite food for him, and and Jacob put on some some ram's hair so he'd feel like his hair brother, and he went in and got the blessing. You remember that? Well, one long after that, Esau showed up and said, uh, "I'm ready for my blessing," and he said, "Well, wait a minute, I thought I already gave it to you." No, no, that wasn't me, and it was Jacob. And Esau got so upset, so angry, he said, "I'm going to kill him," and he really meant it. But again, uh, Jacob's mom heard this, and so she said, man, you need to head out of here. He's out to kill you. And so she sent Jacob back to where her people were. And Jacob went there, you remember, and he married Leah, and he married Rachel, and they had kids, and he was there a number of years. And then God said, it's time to go back. It's time to go back to, to Canaan. And he thought, how can I go back? My brother wants to kill me. Man, he is angry with me. He wants to kill me because I have cheated him and I've done wrong. And so when he went back, he decided he would send a bunch of gifts ahead of him. And so he sent hundreds of, of lambs and, and rams, and he sent cows, and he sent uh, camels, and he sent all these gifts ahead of him to his brother. And you know what it says in the Scripture there? It says that I might appease him. Same word, propitiate, in the Hebrew uh, that's in the Greek there. Same word, propitiate him. I might appease him. I might avert his anger. He hates me, he wants to kill me. Maybe if I give him these gifts, he will turn his anger away from me and he will accept me. And God had worked in Esau's heart and Esau did accept Jacob and did not kill him. Well, you and I have sinned against God and when we have sinned against God, we have heaped up his wrath on us, his holy anger over our sinfulness. Some way, some way that holy anger needs to be turned aside. It needs to be averted. It needs to be satisfied because he's a God of justice. And Jesus Christ was that satisfaction. The Scripture is clear. Over and over again, it says Jesus took our place. The anger, the holy wrath that we deserved over our sins, Jesus took upon Himself so that we wouldn't have to experience it. Galatians 3.13 says it clearly. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, because it is written, Curses everyone who hangs on a tree. He took our curse upon Himself so that we wouldn't have to live under that curse. Again, in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust. We're the unjust. He's the just. He died for us. And then again in 2 Corinthians 5, He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf that we might have the righteousness of God in Him. You see, God poured forth His wrath on Jesus as He hung on that cross. And through the shedding of His blood, God's wrath and God's justice were satisfied. Isaiah 53, prophesying hundreds of years before the cross, what would happen that day when He said, But the Lord was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief. Talking about Jesus on the cross. As a result of the anguish of His soul, he, God the Father, will see it and be satisfied. God's anger burned itself out that day on Calvary. It was spent. So that you and I, who are in Christ, do not have to experience that holy wrath now. Again, look in 1 John 4.10, as we with this new understanding. This is love, not that we love God. But that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the means of satisfying His wrath over our sins. And anyone 
who places their complete faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can have peace with God and be saved from His wrath. Anyone who will come in simple faith and trust, throwing themselves upon the mercy of Jesus Christ, saying, Lord Jesus, I know You satisfied the holiness of God when You took my sin upon Yourself, and I throw myself upon Your mercy. I know I cannot earn it. I know I do not deserve it. I simply receive by faith what You've accomplished for me. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, not by works, not by anything we do, but by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. You're not at war with God anymore when you come to Christ. The anger has been averted. It's been turned away. You're at peace. The animosity, the enmity has been removed. Not only at peace, but we can be saved from His wrath. Verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. You can forever be saved from that wrath of God. You'll not have to experience God's wrath because Jesus experienced it for you in your place. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is it we need to be saved from? The holy wrath of God and eternity in hell. How has God saved us from this wrath? He has poured that wrath on the Lord Jesus in our place. And through faith in Christ, we can experience that aversion of the wrath of God and experience His total, absolute forgiveness. Jesus died that we might live. Brian Chapel is president of Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He tells this story that happened in his hometown. These two brothers decided to go out and play on the sandbanks by the river. And as they were playing, they decided to run up one of the particular sandbanks, not knowing that the sand was very loose, kind of like quicksand. The boys didn't come home when it was the appointed time, and so their mother got alarmed and she formed uh, the neighbors to go and search for the boys. When they found the youngest son, he was covered in sand up to his shoulders, and he was unconscious. They took the sand and, and dug it away from his shoulders down to his waist, and and he revived, being able to breathe. And, and they said, Neither, where's your brother? He said, I'm standing on his shoulders. That brother gave his life so the other brother could live. Jesus has given his life so we can live. You've got two choices. You either experience the wrath of God in an eternity in hell, or you accept Jesus' payment for your sins and spend eternity with God in heaven. Seems like a no-brainer to me. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you are our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, I pray Your Spirit would just reveal to our hearts and minds the reality, the depth of this truth. That You've accomplished through the Lord Jesus everything necessary for us to be saved. For Your holiness to be satisfied. For Your justice to be complete. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.